God of all nations and peoples, we are grateful for the dreams of freedom, justice, and peace forever spun by your spirit and focused by prophets in every age. We are grateful that in our time you call every man and woman to lift up and live by that dream, to embody it in our world by walking the walk, confessing our complicities and injustice, braving the work, daring the confrontation, exposing the lies, singing our faith, asking the questions, making the sacrifices, organizing the community, easing the hate, expanding the compassion, enduring in humility, risking the revolution of love, and ratifying the not-for-sale sign on our souls. We especially praise you this day for the life of Martin Luther King, Jr., and for the countless others down the ages whose names are known and unknown, and for those who yet lift up the dream and confirm it as yours, who quicken the conscience of this country and the human family around the globe, whose courage and commitments, vision and enthusiasm and joy brace our spirits and fire our wills. Within our community and our body, we lift up those who speak on behalf of those without advocates, who bring comfort to the sorrowful, who welcome the stranger, who bring food to the hungry and kindness to the dying. For those who provide rest to the weary, extend your love to the despairing, and work toward your justice in the broken places in our city and our world, we plead that you grant them boldness and grace. We pray for those who work with our city's refugees, for those who advocate for children in the legal system, for our many children, I'm sorry, for our many teachers and coaches who offer to children the sustenance that comes from love and the adventure that comes from learning, for those who speak out against hate and who walk alongside the oppressed. Give each of these extra measures of your peace, gentleness, and rest. Across our country, as turmoil roils up and uncertainty about the future churns, we seek your courage to speak on behalf of your goodness, and to extend mercy to the weak and oppressed. May your church be a prophetic witness for your vision of our world by living in love with each other and with our neighbors and by speaking truth even when it costs us power. May our elected officials act first to build a better community for all members of society. And this week especially, we lift up Senators Alexander and Corker that you would give them courage to do right in your eyes and skills to navigate murky political waters. So we thank you and remember and move boldly on in the faith that however dark the night, however feel fearful the tyrannies of oppression, however heavy the weight of arrogance, we can yet be confident and buoyant in you and your promise that one day justice will roll down like mighty waters, righteousness will flow like a never-failing stream, and mercy will resound like waves on the ocean, and that peace will abide in our hearts through this land and across the earth. Keep us faithful to that promise, your dream, for Christ's sake and for ours. Amen. Tonight's reading, Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day 
and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all of the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. One of my favorite uh, weekly columns comes out on Sunday. It asks uh, influential writers, what are you reading? And the idea is that you can learn a lot about a person uh, by seeing what, what they're reading. And one of the questions is, what's on your nightstand right now? Jesus, of course, did not have a nightstand, um, but we do know what he read. He read the Hebrew scriptures, and he particularly seemed to have enjoyed the Psalms that shaped his prayer life and the prophets that shaped his ministry. So when he launches his own ministry, he quotes a teaching from the prophets on the just kingdom that God is bringing. So the prophet's justice teaching shaped Jesus' understanding of the gospel. And so we, we are gospel people, and we are wondering together this winter, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us to do justice? And uh, I, I don't want you to understand by that is, oh no, the pastor wants us now to add another night where we do justice, and I'm tired already. Wednesday will now be justice night, kids. Let's all go to the mission. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. What I'm talking about is I want you to ask the question this series, in the normal flow of my life, as an insurance salesman, a mother, a teacher, a retiree, someone who's caring for a sick parent, what does it look like for me to do justice? What, what would God say to me from these prophets as I'm trying to figure out what that looks like in the normal day-to-day ebb and flow of my life? Um, as someone pointed out to me there in the Monday night Bible study and the study in John, one of the things that they're learning is that there are needs all over the place. We need to respond to the things God calls us to do. And so what I want you to be listening for as we go through the prophet's teaching is what is the spirit inviting you into in terms of living more justly? Now, it could, don't predetermine it. It could be very, to some of you it might be say, you're doing too much. You need to stop and pray. To some of you it might be, yeah, this is good. To some of you this might be a new idea. But let's kind of start this journey together. I'm not going to tell you what it looks like for you. I'll try to sketch out what the prophet's vision is, and then you discern what it looks like for for you. Now, this is a constant theme in the prophets. 
And so let me give you just a, a, a small percentage of examples from the 16 books. And remember, there we call them the major prophets and the minor prophets. There are 16 of them. They're written over a 300-year period from the middle of the 8th century to the middle of the 5th century. The four major prophets are Daniel, or rather uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and um, I've lost my, my way here. Somebody tell me, what's the fourth major prophet? Yeah, it is Daniel. Okay, thank you, Roy. Always good to have a navigator in the church and correct you when you're goofing up scripturally. And the 12 minor prophets are the smaller books that come at the end of the Old Testament. The only reason they're called major or minor, that means longer and shorter. That, that's all that it, that it means. Now, here's just a sampling of what Jesus would have read and memorized as a young rabbinical student. Uh, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. So you, by the help of the Lord your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor? Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor, my people, of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment? Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my, my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice on the earth. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Is this not the fast I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Then you shall call and the Lord shall answer. We all growl like bears. We hope for justice, but there is none. The Lord wondered that there was no one to intercede. Hear you, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones into pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, then they will cry to the Lord and he won't answer them. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men. They become great and rich. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? 
If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, and if you do not go after other gods, then I'll let you dwell in this place. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, and don't, do not wrong or violence to the residents of alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Woe to him who builds his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing, and does not give him his wages. Did not your father do justice? Then it was well with him. Is not this to know me? declares the Lord. If a man does what is just, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with his garment, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes, he is righteous, he shall surely live, declares the Lord. The people of the land have oppressed the poor and needy, and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. Therefore I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. I will feed them in justice. So justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, but they refuse to pay attention. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The prophets can be difficult to interpret. They're often, I think, taken out of context and used inappropriately. Uh, they're speaking to an ancient culture. They use odd metaphors like the ruin of Joseph. They, they start sentences with, woe to you. Uh, they call down the wrath of God. At least four of the books are very, very long. There's not any particular plot in them. Uh, you don't read them devotionally, typically, and normally you don't preach on them. But the prophetic vision should matter to us because it mattered to our Lord. And if we're to understand what it means to be gospel people, we need to understand the prophetic scriptures that shaped his understanding of the gospel. Now, tonight, I want to give you five, briefly, five simple principles to keep in mind when you're reading the prophets. First principle, think oracle. Have you ever wondered why the prophets are, uh, aren't easy to read in a single setting? If you've ever tried that, it's very difficult. Well, it's because they weren't intended to be read in a single setting. The prophets are collections of oracles, and an oracle was a prophetic word, a spoken prophetic word. And what would happen is the prophet would go like to the temple, he'd make a prophecy, someone would write it down. Over the course of his ministry, they would gather them, and then usually probably after he died, they would collect them all and put them together. And they weren't so interested about chronology. They weren't so interested about plot flow. Um, they just wanted you to have all the oracles. So it's hard to read just straight through. Uh, you have to break them down. The key to reading the epistles is paragraphs, right? If you're going to read and study an epistle, you go by paragraph by paragraph. If you're going to read and study a prophetic book, you go oracle by oracle. Um, there are some clues that you can tell you're in a new oracle. Remember, that word just means prophetic word. Um, the phrase, thus saith the Lord, that usually means you're beginning a new section. Uh, the phrase, woe to you, 
means you're beginning a, a new oracle. Uh, that was a phrase from Jewish funerals, and it meant that you were grieving the death of something. So when the prophet says, woe to you, Israel, the prophet is saying, uh, I'm grieving the death that's about to come upon you for your sin. Uh, another clue that you're starting a new oracle is the phrase, in that day. That normally means that the prophet is going to sketch out a hopeful vision of what God's going to do uh, later. So the book of Isaiah, for example, is really a collection of prophetic words spoken by the prophet over a lifetime of ministry. So if you want to study Isaiah, you sit with one oracle at a time. The second principle of reading the prophets, don't look for tea leaves. Um, a generation ago, many Bible teachers searched the prophets for insights into the end times. Uh, Hal Lindsey's best-selling book, The Late Great Planet Earth, promised on its cover, quote, a penetrating look at incredible prophecies involving this generation. And if you remember that, the idea was is that these prophetic books will help us unravel all the things that are going on in the Middle East and in Europe and Russia and, and all, those, all those things. Um, the prophets, however, were primarily concerned with the problems of their own day. And normally, when they talk about the future, they mean the future of Israel, the near future of Israel, as she faces God's discipline. About 2% of the prophetic writings are messianic, and about less than 1% deal with the end times. So the prophets are really more reformers. They're worried about the spiritual and moral health of their people, and they're calling their people to repent and come back to God. And when they look into the future, usually it's to provide an alternative, hopeful vision of what it looks like when God's reign comes. Third principle, study a little history. Uh, let's take the prophet Amos, for example. He's very upset. God is very upset through him, but it's not apparent why. So here's how uh, the editor opens up the, his introduction to the book of Amos. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa when he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, what's significant about that is it tells us that these were the glory days of Israel. Uh, the northern kingdom was safe. They were pretty safe. They had good alliances. They weren't under particular threat. It was a very prosperous time. If you go through the book of Amos, you find references to farmers having plenty of sheep and cattle, some residents even owning summer and winter palaces, uh, drinking wine by the, by the bowlful, um, expensive perfumes. Religion is rocking as well. You see people flocking to the, to the, to the shrines in the northern kingdom. And so you get this idea that the, the people in Israel are, are really kind of fat and happy. They're, they're enjoying God's blessing. They think that they're right with God. They're very proud of their nation. And so then out of the blue, this smelly shepherd shows up at the king's gate and says, thus says the Lord, it's all going down. It's all going to burn up. And the rest of the book of Amos is a series of visions where God talks about his judgment on this affluent society 
and on the priests and the kings that are leading it. And you wonder, what, what, what is he talking about? This was a prosperous time. Well, if you do just a little bit of digging historically, what you find out is it really wasn't. It was very prosperous for the handful of elites in the cities who had figured out how to make a lot of money off of the poor people out in the country. And Amos was from the country. And so Amos knew that while the people in the cities were getting summer houses and winter houses and bowls full of wine, people in his neighborhood were starving. So a little bit of history helps us understand the whole message and purpose of the book of Hosea. Two more principles for helping us read the, uh, the prophets. The fourth one is remember the covenant. God made a covenant with Israel. He calls them to himself out in the desert. Remember that? He gives them, uh, he promises to be their people, their God. If they'll be his people, he says, I'm going to make you a light to the nations. He says, I love you. You're my children. Here are my laws. Live my way. Others will be drawn to you. Just keep my covenant. I'll bless you. If you don't keep my covenant, they'll be disciplined. That was the covenant. Well, two, three hundred years go by and Israel forgets the covenant. She forgets who she is. She forgets her identity. She forgets what God had called her to be and do. And so God sends the prophets to warn Israel about what happens when she fails to keep the covenant. So the prophets are filled with blessing and cursing language, which comes from the book of Deuteronomy. And all the prophets are doing is they're like being lawyers reminding Israel what she committed to do and telling her the consequences if she won't do it. So the prophets are conservative theologically. They're not original in their message. All they're doing is is, uh, they're mediating the covenant. They're going back and reminding Israel of the covenant that she promised to keep. Lastly, the last principle for reading the prophets, and then we'll practice real quickly. Imagine the kingdom. And I think this is key because the real hard thing in this is how do you bridge all this into our world today, into the new covenant world? That's what's really challenging. So one way you can do that is to imagine the kingdom. Here's how Mark describes the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Where did Jesus get the word gospel from? He got it from the prophets. The prophets talk about the good news of the coming reign of the kingdom of God. So Jesus says he's come to establish the kingdom or the reign of God on earth, and the vision he gets for the kingdom of God comes from the prophets. Now, you remember how we define the role of a prophet? We said the prophet does two things. He critiques the way the people have left God and calls them back, and he offers a hopeful vision of the future. And so a big part of the old prophets is a vision of what will happen when God's reign really comes to earth. And Jesus calls that the gospel. And here's one of many texts that Jesus is thinking of when he says he's come to bring in the kingdom of God. We read it every Christmas. It's from Isaiah 9. 
The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in the land of deep darkness, on them is light shined. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, the kingdom, shall be on his shoulder. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, of his kingdom, and of peace, there shall be no end. Now, why does this matter? Well, when I first started to understand this, probably about 15 years ago, and I started to talk about this, and I started to do more teaching from the Old Testament, good friends would say, you know, I, I, I just wish you'd stick to the gospel. And what, I, what I'm trying to suggest, brothers and sisters, is that if you do not understand the prophets, you do not understand the gospel. You cannot understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. Jesus Christ took the very understanding of the Evangelion, the good news, from the Hebrew prophets. Again, who cares? This is all theology. Oh, no, 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 no. If we are gospel people, then everything we should do should be shaped by Jesus' vision for the kingdom. Afterwards, Bill Lee just told me, good news, he's going over to Vanderbilt. Finally, he's going to be able to get his uh, transfusion. We've been praying for him every week. Why do we do that? Well, it's just kind of a nice thing before somebody goes in, you know. <laughs> no. Because when the prophets prophesy of the kingdom of God, they say that when God's kingdom comes, the sick, are healed. That's why we pray for the sick. That's what happens with the kingdom of God. Why do we call people to repent and turn from their sin and come back? Because that's what the prophets said you had to do to come into the kingdom of God. Why do we care for the widows and the orphan and all of that? Because that's what the prophets said you had to do for the kingdom of God. The kingdom should shape our vision for ministry. Now, let's conclude um, by practicing just for a moment. If we could put the Amos 6 passage up again. Let's apply our five principles to see if they can help us uh, understand a passage from the prophets. I'll read it again. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Woe to those who lie in beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. It's clearly a condemnation of the essential oils industry. Oh, man. No, no. <laughs> now, see what you can do with these things? You get really off, off track. Um, drinking wine in bowls, you know, things like that. It's, a, it's an anti-fraternity passage. Um, no, it's not. All right. First of all, it's a woe oracle, right? And so that tells you that you're starting a new discussion where the prophet is saying, y'all are going to die. You're going to be judged. You're going to be punished because of your sin. And he uses two metaphors. One is for those who are at ease in Zion. And you remember... 
Remember we said last week the prophets are more poets than theologians? Think Hamilton. Are you familiar with that wonderful musical? I guess I haven't seen it, but I'm listening to the soundtrack, and my, my daughter's seen it. And it, you know, it's essentially rap music that is making a prophetic point in contemporary culture. Uh, that's the prophets were kind of like the, the writer of Hamilton, kind of like Shakespeare in a way, uh, trying to make a prophetic point by using poetic language. So. At ease in Zion, Zion is a metaphor for the people of God. And so the prophet is saying, Israel, you've gotten real relaxed and fat and happy with all your own privileges because it's all working for you. And you're not looking around you. You're not even looking in your own family to see the needs that are around you. You've become at ease in Zion. And then that little phrase at the end, you're not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. You know, Joseph, one of the original patriarchs, he is a, a metaphor in Scripture for the tribes of Israel, or again, the people of God. And what the prophet's saying there is, you know, you guys have become so insensitive, you're enjoying your, your couches and your, your big bowls of wine. You don't even care anymore about how much people are suffering in your own community. You've just become dull to it. You just, you don't even realize it. Uh, I was talking to somebody before here who's been helping uh, our, our friend uh, Marquisa, you know, who was evicted and almost became homeless. And God's really done some wonderful things. And he was over there last night and he said, uh, this has really rocked my world. Being in a, the home of a mother of three as she's trying to avoid homelessness and work with KCDC and pay off payday lenders at 460% is just totally upended my world. I'm just never there. I think what he's realizing is there's some grieving to do in, about the ruin in Joseph. And I think even at a more, perhaps a more spiritual level, the, there's, there's some grieving to do over the sins in our own community, the ways that we don't love one another well, the ways we don't love him well. There's some grieving that needs to be done over that. So we know that it's a woe oracle. We also know it's not a passage about the end times. It's just addressing the events in Amos' community. Um, we do our history, and we realize that there is this massive economic gap stretching out between the haves and the have-nots. There's a real problem of social and economic inequality. That's part of what he's addressing there. He says, does anybody care? And you remember, this isn't America. This is... Israel, and Israel was a covenant community where God called them to all be in community and to care for each other. That's, this is what Leviticus, Deuteronomy is about, much of Exodus is, Exodus is about it, is that the weakest member of the community is connected to all of us and that we, we need to care for everybody. And I think one of the ways we apply that, we apply that is just right in here. 
we can apply it to the broader community. But you know, I think if God were here tonight, he would say, you know, Doug, you're just railing away about social inequality. Do you, do you know that there was someone in your church tonight who was so depressed this week they thought about taking their life? Do you know there was someone in your church tonight that's so lonely that they're going to go home and do drugs? They're a prisoner. You don't think you have prisoners in your congregation? Oh, yeah, it's called addiction. You don't think you have widows in your congregation? Yeah, it's called being divorced. You don't think you have orphans in your congregation? Yeah, it's called being single. Are you at ease in Zion because you're going home to a nice full table? I think that's some of the things that he would say to us from this. Our fourth principle about remembering the covenant, Amos isn't saying anything new here. He's drawing upon all the teaching of covenant, all the laws in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy about caring for one another. And then lastly, I think it just reminds us of the kingdom of God. And again, I I think it's real important that we apply this series first to our own house. We can talk about the nation and the city and, and all that, and that's important. But remember, these were words given to the people of God. So if we're not practicing justice here, we don't have much to say about out there. And in the kingdom of God, in our little family, it's not okay if some of us have nothing and are going under. It's just not okay. It doesn't mean we all have to have the same amount It's not okay if some are going under. Now let me ask you two questions um, as as we end tonight. And, you know, one of the things that's challenging about meeting in a bar um, is it's not very sacred, and sacred space is important. And one of the beautiful things about a traditional church is you, you do have places where you can go, and there's altars and places where you can kind of connect with God. So, we are doing our best, and so we've built this wailing wall, which, as I shared last week, is the, the, the western wall of the temple where people from all over the world come and pray. They, they write down prayers, and they put them in the cracks, and then every night the rabbis take them and, I think, pray over them. I'm not exactly sure about that. And so one of the things that we want you to do during this series is listen to God. What is he saying to you? And again, remember the, mon- the lesson from Monday night, It's not about need. It's about invitation from the Holy Spirit into his vision for your life. And it might be as small as loving your two baby girls. So sometime during this series, if the Spirit's starting to move you, come up, take the Eucharist, come over. Maybe just sit before the wall for a moment. I I was privileged to do that once in in Jerusalem. It was a very holy, sacred moment. And just ask God, 
Am I at ease in Zion? Am I no longer grieved over the ruin of Joseph? Let's pray.